0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today is the second Sunday uh, of the great fast, and today we read the story in the scripture where the devil was tempting Christ during 40 days when Christ was fasting in the desert. And at the very end, after the three temptations that the devil tempts Christ with, uh, Christ has victory over the devil and victory over this temptation, and he sends Satan away. And he says, away with you, Satan for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. When Christ was speaking about the temptations of the devil, when he was speaking about the spiritual struggle and how we are overcome the devil during his ministry, he spoke about the devil being like a strong man. And we read in Mark chapter three, verse 27, he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house. So who is the strong man? The strong man is the devil. And his house is like this world where he currently has dominion. Whoever wants to defeat the strong man. Imagine someone is going to like steal from the strong man. You have to first bind the strong man. Because he is powerful. Okay? And Christ is the one who came to bind the strong man. He is the one who came to defeat him. So that in all of the struggles that we face. It is not we are the ones who are expected to bind the strong man because he is in fact very strong and there is no way for us to defeat him. But Christ comes and he binds him so that we can have victory from him. So in what ways uh, are those that are living in darkness bound by the strong man? In, In several different ways that the world who is kind of under the sway of the devil that is tempted by him and falling into several lusts and temptations. How are they living in this darkness? What are they experiencing? In Titus chapter 3, St. Paul says, For we ourselves were once also foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another this is how saint paul is describing what what the the lives of the people were before the enlightenment of christ before the coming of christ before the redemption and the salvation that christ came to offer before the transformation and the change and the spiritual renewal that christ came to give to the to the believer this is what saint paul was saying this is the way that we used to live we ourselves were foolish disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. This is the, this is the work of the strong man. This is the work of the devil who is, has us kind of under his captivity, unable to escape and unable to overcome all of these things. But Christ, when he came, he came to set us free from this sin so that we no longer have to be slaves of sin, but we can be slaves of righteousness. We can be slaves of Christ. We can be his servants and following him out of our own free will, having self-control of what it is that we choose to do and what is it that we choose to think and what is it that we choose to believe. Instead of being controlled by him or controlled by our lusts, we can overcome this. Christ came to set us free from this slavery uh, to sin. And he says in Galatians chapter five, verse one, stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. He's saying what? Enjoy your freedom, you know, make use of this freedom that God has given you, right? God has granted us freedom from sin. Don't go back into the sin again. Don't go allow yourself to be corrupted again. Don't allow yourself to be addicted again you know, rejoice in the freedom that you have received in Christ and continue in this freedom and excel in righteousness. He's saying, stand fast in the liberty by which Christ made us free. So I want to speak about these, um, this list of things that St. Paul spoke about here in Titus, the foolishness, disobedience, deception, and so on, um, one by one, and kind of talk about how this applies to us in our life and how Christ granted us victory from these things. So the first one is he said what? We were, we, we were foolish. We were foolish before. In Psalm 14 verse 1 it says, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. This is the foolishness of the world. The foolishness of the world that wants to close their eye to the, to the possibility even that there is a God. Not necessarily because they don't see the evidence of his existence, but because they do not want him to exist. They want to live in isolation and separation from this God because this God is telling them how is it that they should live. He is coming to tell them there is a right and a wrong and they need to do the right and leave the wrong. They, they, f- they feel like they want to have control and autonomy in themselves and they reject the idea that there is a God who is coming to tell them what to do and to provide them any kind of guidelines for life. Right? The foolish do not believe in God and they do not want to believe in God. But Christ, he gave us enlightenment. And He gave us through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us wisdom so that we can see Him. And when we see Him, we don't see Him as just a God of rules and a God who wants to be like in dominion over us, telling us and controlling us what it is that we should do. But instead, we see God's rules, God's commandments in a different way. We don't see Him as one who is simply enjoying having control and authority. We see Him as a loving Father who wants to give us guidelines for our safety in order to protect us from this temptation, in order to protect us from corruption, in order to protect us from the slavery of sin. Maybe any of us who has ever experienced falling into a sin from the, for the first time, at the very beginning, we never thought that we would it would lead us to any kind of addiction. We never thought it would lead us to any kind of struggle that we would find it's very difficult for us to come again out of, right? But this is the nature of sin, the addiction of sin. And so Christ wants to spare us from this. He wants to spare us from going through the pain and the suffering that comes along with addiction to sin. So he, he, he warns us from the beginning and he says, don't do this. You know, when he came and he told Eve, he says, don't eat of this forbidden fruit. It is forbidden. Why? Not because it is so good that I don't want you to have it. It is forbidden because it's poison to you. Right? And Eve, not understanding and not believing this, she she followed the temptation of the devil and she ate of the fruit and, for, and she tasted for herself the magnitude of the consequence of her sin that, that, that God could never have explained to her fully. You know, he could never have explained to her what exactly is going to happen to you. All he said was, is when you eat of this fruit, you will experience death. She sa- he said, you will experience death. But what is death? Eve had never experienced anything like death the the word death was was strange to her there was no creation that god had made that had died and 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 she herself and adam were not supposed to die so what is this death right maybe we when we are contemplating sin we don't we've never tasted the consequences of these sins before and so we naively go into it thinking that it is not a big deal that there's not going to be any kind of negative consequence for it but god is warning us ahead of time don't do this So we turn to God and we listen to his commandments, not because he wants to have authority, not because he wants to command us, but because he wants to protect us from ourselves and from wrong choices. He wants to save us from sin. And so it is actually foolish of us when we ignore his warnings and foolish of us when we close our eyes to him as though he does not even exist. Another way that uh, St. Paul was speaking to St. Titus of how is it that the believers were before the enlightenment, before the coming of Christ was disobedient. He says in uh, Titus 1:16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualifying for every good work. So we have to ask ourselves: In what way do we know God? Do we do we profess to know God? This is what he's saying. Saint Paul is saying they profess to know. They profess to know God. They are claiming that they are believers. They are claiming that they know and they know who God is, and they live according to His commandments. But in their works. They deny him, in their works. So, with their mouth, they believe him. With their mouth, they are saying, "Yes, we believe in God. Yes, we are believers. Yes, we, you know, you know, we, we we profess His name. We say that we believe in Him." But in in practice, he says, "What their works deny Him. Their works deny Him." So we ask ourselves, "What do our works claim? What do our works say? Do they match what we say? Do they match what we say that we believe? Are our works matching?" And and maybe all of us we fall into sin. Which is, which is true, which is something that we all experience. But when we sin, do we repent of our sins or do we ignore this? We just kind of like say, well, it's not a big deal. I'm not going to really focus on it, um, you know, and I don't treat it seriously, right? Here, here our, our works have to match what we profess, what it is that we say. Christ made us to know his laws. Christ made us to know his laws and he gave us the ability to obey his commandments, which is something very important. In the Old Testament, God gave the people so many different laws. The law of Moses, the law of burnt offerings, the laws of circumcision, the laws of the fasting, the laws of all these things that he gave to the people. And yet, all of this was such a burden on the people, none of them could even obey it. None of them could fulfill it. It was too much of a burden. And St. Paul in the book of Romans, he was saying, what was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law was to make us realize our own weakness to make us realize that God set a standard and we cannot reach that standard. And because we cannot reach that standard, we we realize that we are in need of salvation. We are in need of a savior to come and save us from the requirements of the law because we are too weak to fulfill what the law has said. And this is why Christ came. He came as a savior to save us from the fact that we cannot fulfill the law of God, that we are sinners. And so Christ made us to know his law not so that the law can have dominion and control over us, but that so he can set us free from the requirements of the law through the salvation that he came to offer to us. This doesn't mean that he doesn't want us to obey him. Of course, he wants us to obey him. But even as we are trying to obey, and even as we are struggling to obey, he offers salvation to us, he offers forgiveness when we fall short. But also he gives us the power through the working of the Holy Spirit in us to be transformed so that we can obey, so that we can follow. From the moment of our baptism and receiving of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit begins to sanctify us, to transform us, to give us the ability so that we can obey Him. So we are called for obedience. We are called to a life of obedience with Him because He has given us the ability to obey Him. Another characteristic of the way that the people were before the enlightenment of Christ is they were living in deception. Okay? St. Paul says that the people were deceived. In Galatians chapter 6, he says, Do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever man whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. What is this deception he's speaking about? This is the deception of the temporal nature of the world. He's saying when you sow what? When you sow corruption, in this world, you will reap corruption in eternity. When you sow what to the spirit in this world, you will you will ro- you will reap eternal salvation and eternal life. This deception that we are kind of under this yoke of this deception is the idea that we will live forever and that there is no consequence beyond this life. <clears throat> if you look at the way that the world is living a very good way to categorize the kind of the world is it's a world that believes that there are no consequences it's a world that believes that they will live forever with no consequences whatsoever and all that we care about is the moment all i care about is what's going to make me you know feel good in the moment and regardless of what consequence it will have on me whether it be physically in the future or eternally uh, in my in my spiritual life eternally so this is the deception Okay? That, that we are blinded to the idea that we are not invincible, we are not you know, going to live in this world forever, that there will be a reckoning, there will be a judgment day. The, in the liturgy we say what? He has appointed a day for recompense on which he will appear to judge the world in righteousness and give each one according to his deeds. So when we f- would realize this and we as believers, we think about this judgment, this judgment should not be something that makes us tremble. In fact, it should be something that brings us comfort because we are living now in separation. We are living in a, in a kingdom that is not the kingdom of God. We are not living. We are, we are citizens of heaven, and yet we are living like in a foreign land, just like when Daniel was exiled from his land and went to Babylon, and he lived in this foreign land. He was still a believer. He still prayed. He still wanted to offer sacrifices. He still wanted to fulfill and obey the law, but he was like an exile. He was living far away from his land. He could not do many of the things that he wanted to do. So we also are like living in a foreign land. We want to obey our king. We want to follow his, his laws, but we are living in a land that does not revere him does not want us to follow his laws, does not practice what it is he wants us to practice. And this is a deception, that they are living in this deception, believing that they can continue to do this forever. So we should not be afraid of judgment. Instead, we should realize that the judgment is the way by which we return again to our land. The judgment is the way that we return again to our land, to our rightful place, where God intended for us to be from the beginning. Those who are afraid of judgment are the ones that are living in lawlessness. The ones living in non-repentance, the ones that are living apart from God and rebellion against God, those are the ones that should be afraid of judgment. But not we as believers should not be living in in fear of judgment. We should be living actually in a hopeful expectation that the judgment is our reunion with God again. Because Christ made us aware of this transitory nature of the world. He revealed to us how this world and all the details that are in it are not as important as we make them out to be so that when we live our life with this mentality, with this attitude, we don't feel like we are consumed by this world and that all the problems and that we face in and on, all the troubles and the trials, that are all temporary. Christ reminds us of this. He says, live for the live for eternity. Don't live for this world. This world is full of pain and suffering, but in, in your eternal life, you will not have this. So do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not live according to the, the world system. He also spoke about people before the coming of Christ were lustful. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, "'For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, "'the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, "'is not of the Father, but is of the world.'" This lust means that people are living for pleasure, that our goal is comfort, that our goal is to feel good, that our goal is whatever makes me feel the most comfort, the most pleasure, that is what I seek after, that is what I want, that is what I desire, right? And again, it's because we don't see that there's anything else. We don't see that there's anything bigger than that. We're focusing only on the moment. Those people that live in lust, they live very tempor- temporary lives, very temporal, very very in the minute, very in the moment. What is it that I want now? And, and really the consequence doesn't even matter. But Christ, he gave us what? He gave us this abiding joy that has nothing to do with our circumstances. And that's something very important as believers. That we, we have We derive our joy from our relationship with God, unrelated to the circumstances of the moment unrelated to the moment you know the word happy comes from the word like happens what happens to me what happens to me is what makes me happy or what makes me not happy okay it's the same kind of root but joy is not based on what happens right because there's so many things that are going to happen to us that are not pleasant things that we don't like things that we would prefer didn't happen And yet Christ is saying, "What your joy is derived not from what happens, your joy is derived from Him. Our joy is derived from God's presence. And because God is present and no one can remove His presence, that means that no one should be able to remove our joy. No one should be able to remove our enjoyment that we have in this world, not because of the things that are in the world, but because of the One who is with us in the world, the One who abides with us, the One who is in us, the One who promises that we are in Him and that we will continue in Him forever. So this is, this is why we, we leave behind lusts. We leave behind lusts because lusts are actually poisonous. The, the, we believe that these are going to grant us joy and goodness. And yet the moment we partake of them, they bring only sorrow and mourning and, and, and addiction and sadness. So even though for a moment it feels like these lusts are good, but in the long run they're debilitating. However, the love of God and the joy that God brings and abides in us is, is, is eternal. It's something that lasts forever. It's not something that, that, you know, I feel in one moment and is gone the next. Because God is not gone. God remains. So to, for us to, to learn how to have a right type of Christian joy is very important. This is what Christ came to offer us. He said, leave behind your addictions. Leave behind your attachments to this world. And everything that you are, you are attached to that you think is going to bring you happiness, but it's not. Instead, only attach yourself to me, the one who will bring you this true and abiding joy. He also said the characteristic of people before their enlightenment in Christ is that they were malicious and envious. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So this is speaking what about our relationship to one another. What should our relationship to one another be? How is it that we treat each other? Sometimes we say that we, we love God and we believe in him and we love him, but we don't love our neighbor. And Christ said, how is it that we can love God whom we do not see if we cannot even love our neighbor whom we do see? How is it that I can say that I love God when I do not love my neighbor? So. He's asking us, put away this anger, put away this wrath, put away this evil speaking, right? And be what? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. God grant us the, the ability to be tender-hearted. God granted us the ability to forgive whenever we are wronged instead of holding a grudge and holding to ha- to hatred and anger we can forgive one another and 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 respect one another even when we disagree and even when things you know and people do not treat us the way we would like right because Christ is the one who forgave what is my motivation for forgiving other people it's because i realize my own sin whenever i know my own sin And I realize that I am the one in need of salvation first and foremost, it is not possible for me to judge another person. It is not possible for me not to forgive another person, because who am I not to forgive? I am the first person in need of forgiveness. I am the one who has hurt others. I am the one who has hurt God. I am the one who has blasphemed God. I am the one who has rebelled against God. I am the one who has done all these things. So I am the first person in need of forgiveness. So if I am in need of the mercy of God, how, how is it that I'm going to deny my brother or my sister mercy? How is it that I'm going to deny them forgiveness when I'm so much in need of forgiveness? There is nothing that I can, there's nothing that I can do. There is nothing that I can say, right? Other than to say sin. Whereas before uh, the enlightenment of Christ, the people were hateful. It says in 1 John chapter 3, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Okay. Christ taught us to love others. And what is that love? What is the definition of love to love another person? To love another person doesn't mean we have warm feelings toward them, right? Because Christ told us to love our enemies. So how is it that I can love my enemy? Does it mean that I'm supposed to like hug my enemies and have warm feelings toward my enemies? No, that's that's not going to happen. Okay? If I have someone who hates me, right? How is it that I love them? To love them means to sacrifice for them. So love them means to give of myself to them even when they don't deserve. Right? Actually this is how this is how Christ showed love to us. Christ never came and he said, You know what, I love you, let me give you a big hug. You know, I love you, which means, you know, I'm gonna give you a pat on the back. That's not the way Christ loved us. Christ loved us by sacrificing himself on the cross for us, even while we were sinners and didn't deserve didn't deserve any love, didn't deserve anything good from him. This is how he demonstrated love right so this is how also he is calling us to love he's calling us to love by to give to sacrifice of ourselves to sacrifice of our time to sacrifice of our energy but to who you know to who not just to those people who are close to us in luke chapter 6 what christ says what like even sinners love those who love them even sinners love those what good is it to you if you love those who love you even sinners do this we are called to love those who hate us which is a much different standard of love. But this is the standard. This is actually the Christian love that Christ is calling us to. If we love those who love us, this is like any other non-believer. This is like anyone. right? This is is the natural uh, kind of uh, human instinct, is to love those who love us. So that's not what Christ is talking about when he speaks about love. That natural type of love that's almost automatic that happens in us, That's not what Christ is talking about. He's saying to love those who hate you, right? And this is why he was saying what? Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him, right? He wants us to love. He wants us to give of ourselves, to sacrifice of ourselves to others. So in conclusion, in Romans chapter 8, St. Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, But you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out abba father we are calling god our father because he considers us to be his children and as his children we try to imitate him as his children we imitate the father we want to learn from him just as any child wants to grow and learn from his parents he wants to imitate him he wants to grow and learn from them so also we are growing in the characteristics of our god the characteristics of god we are made in his image and we are growing in his likeness. We are growing to become like him. So he says what? The life that you lived before your conversion, the life that you lived before you received the Holy Spirit, the life that you live when you were living in darkness is one. But the life that you are now have, that you now live when you are living in the light, should be completely a different life. Should be different. So if we look at ourselves and we find that I still am living in darkness, that I still have the characteristics of darkness, the characteristics of corruption living in me, right the, what does that mean it means that i need to repent it means that i need to work right until god showers me with blessing and removes from me this 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 corruption removes from me this darkness right and this is up to him right we are working and doing our part in this what is our part our part is that i'm struggling in virtue i'm struggling to change i'm struggling to get better i'm struggling and and part of the struggle is repenting when i fail right this is our part this is all we can do but we trust and wait on God to change our hearts. God is the one who changes the heart. God is the one who comes and transforms us in his time, in his way, right? And we can't push this process, right? We can't push. All we can do is struggle and, and repent when we fail. This is what Christ calls us for. And this is like during the time of the great fast. This is the perfect time for this because what is the role of the fasting? We are fasting in our struggle. We are saying, God, I'm denying myself the things that I want because I want to live for you. I want to to live according to your precepts. I want to deny myself what what I want because I want to learn how to live in what you want, not in what I want. I want to have self-control, right? And this this part of having self-control is this process of transformation. So may God grant us that we live and, 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 and truly experience his love and experience all of the benefits of the transformation that he is calling us to, to, to leave the life of darkness and to live in the light that he has called us to. And glory be to God forever. Amen.